But if you're looking at a luxury commodity, even a limited edition car or certain forms of fashion that can really, in some ways, outstrip the cost of many artworks, what they don't have that you find in art is this element of narrative and this conceptual or intellectual dimension that we think of as being fundamental to the artwork, not only as a material object, but also in terms of our encounter with it and the conversations that we have when we look at works of art, that is part of the work. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. You know, during COVID, everything has obviously changed, including travel. I used to travel, I used to be on the road so much, working with companies and doing workshops and speeches and uh, some good old fashioned vacation, uh, visiting other academic institutions, actually spending some time with colleagues in other places. And that took up a lot of my time in a really, really great way. But because of COVID, that doesn't happen. And so I started taking some classes, undergraduate classes here at Dartmouth College in the summer and into the uh, fall. And in the summer, I took a course called Modern American Theater, where we read plays like Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman and All My Sons, Tennessee Williams' A Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, and Streetcar Named Desire, Lorraine Hansberry's A Raisin in the Sun, and uh, of course, Eugene O'Neill's Long Day's Journey into Night. Professor there was Donald Peace, who's kind of a legendary professor. Very interesting, fascinating, really, discussion. And if you haven't read these plays or seen the plays, you can Google this and probably find them to read for yourself. They're pretty amazing. They're timeless. They're moving. They're powerful. Really what I was looking for last summer. Uh, but more recently in the fall, I took another Dartmouth class. This one was called Art and Money, right? Art and Money. And I figured, well, that's a little bit closer to my home turf as a business school professor, even though I know nothing about art history and art, but it was a transformational course. The questions and issues brought up by the professor, Chad Elias, who, by the way, is my guest today on this episode of the SIDCast, didn't just capture me because the content was so new to me, at least, but because thinking about the way art and money intersect led me to a whole bunch of new insights about people, about entertainment, about culture, and even about life. That's really why I wanted Professor Elias on the podcast, to just kind of talk, talk about some of the things that came up in the course that I think are going to be very interesting for lots of people and some of the things that it made me think of. In this introduction to the episode, let me give you a little bit of stream of consciousness about some of these things. So for example, in the field of art history, it's usually art historians, critics, and curators who contribute to the generating of what is called symbolic value. What's the price of an artwork? How do you know what the price should be? Because you can't do anything else with a work of art other than experience that work of art. And so it has symbolic or cultural value. And these stakeholders, these art historians, critic curators, they're all involved in defining what that value actually is. And critics are really interesting for me because, you know, critics are so important for theater and movie reviews. If your New York Times critic pans your play after opening night, you're in big trouble. But art seems different. You know, it's almost like there's this loosely and somewhat tightly knit cadre of players, dealers, auction houses, artists, of course, collectors, brand builders, a lot of wannabes who want to be part of this world. And they collectively define meaning and value, and therefore they collectively define price. And so maybe critics are influential for unknown artists because they could bring them to the intention of others who might not have otherwise known about them. But it seems that these players, they kind of close ranks about value with or without the cooperation of critics. Critics are really not that central. In fact, critics probably are the ones that communicate value to others as opposed to defining that value in the first place. They take what others have done and they elaborate on it. And somewhere I read that critics are purveyors of credibility, which gives you a sense of what the role is which is different than lots of other places. You know, art historians might have even lesser impact in this process. You know, they're brought in to provide historical analogies and context by the auction houses when they want to enhance the value of a work of art. They write these long, sophisticated essays about a work of art and place it in a historical context, all designed to show you or to convince potential buyers that, hey, this is really important. In a way, they're window dressing they're marketers, which I think most art historians would not be happy to hear me describe them that way. But that's kind of what they are. 
But price, again, is so interesting, right? How do you value this really uncertain investment? What do we know in other fields about the value of an uncertain investment? Being a business school professor, I thought, well, what about startups? You know, how do you know what their value is? And you can't really know, you know, you take a leap of faith. Yeah, there's the hockey stick projections, so-called hockey stick, because it shows you how the line's going straight up for revenue and profitability. But it's all kind of predictions and make-believe. The metrics are not at all clear. The valuation of a startup depends very much on what investors choose to believe in, what they believe the inherent value is. And it's independent of very few real indicators of value. And that's similar to art collectors, isn't it? For new work, you don't know. And they make a decision. They take this kind of leap of faith. And then if you're an investor in startup, once you've invested, you do everything you possibly can to boost the value of that investment by communicating about that, by talking about it, by writing about it, certainly by, if you're on the board of directors, helping them get better. And art collectors do the same thing. And so do art auction houses, the Sotheby's and the Christie's. It's a very interesting thing. The other example is of a CEO. How do you know what the value of a CEO is? Yeah, some have a long track record and maybe you could say, okay, they've proven it. The fact is not a lot of CEOs have been successful in one industry and then gone on to a different industry and have been successful there. I mean, it happens, but for most CEOs, people that are hired as a CEO, how do you know they're really good? And what are the metrics you look at? There's an entire industry built around this too, of course, right? The executive search industry is all about that. And they try to answer that question. What are these metrics? What are the metrics that are important? And how do you decide that? And so there's a lot of value creation for startups, for CEOs, for artwork. We like to think maybe that it's scientific or it's economics oriented, but there's a big part of kind of social construction of a reality. Another thing that I thought of in this art and history course, because this gets to the value question as well, you know, what are the expectations for the artwork? And when those expectations are high, that value of that artwork is going to be high. And I thought about it in a little different context. Each of us actually produce expectations from people all around us for good behavior or bad behavior. We have a new president in the United States, President Biden, where there's all sorts of expectations, some of it kind of layered into the context in which he's starting, COVID taking over and the exit of Trump. But those are expectations that people have. There's expectations for excellence or for failure. And it's not just a President Biden that has that. We all have that. And we can get locked into those obligations that people create for us. They expect us to behave a certain way. And then it becomes difficult to break out of that type of expectation. I mean, how do you become a creative person? If people around you define you and create these expectations that you have to do what you've always done before. How are you a creative person? You know, Bob Dylan, I've been such a big fan of Dylan for years and years, and I've seen many of his concerts many times. I've seen him because he's probably done 10,000 concerts in his life, maybe more. For years, he has not sung the same song the same way from night to night, week to week, year to year. You can listen and listen, and especially as he's gotten older and his voice has, let's say, not aged like a fine wine, to be sure. But as he's gotten older, he changes the songs and takes a while to figure out what that song is. It's pretty funny, but he's creating. He's always inventing, and that's why he's so intriguing. He's redefined himself in so many ways and so many times. Maybe each time angering a past audience who wanted him to keep playing the same things because they had those expectations, but he refused. And there's a big lesson here for life as well. And this goes far beyond, you know, Dylan or art. My first academic job was at the University of Southern California, beautiful LA. And, you know, being here in Hanover in winter makes you long for LA in winter as well. But I was a kind of this hotshot researcher and I was typecast as a researcher. And my ecosystem, if you will, of faculty, of students, of administrators, they had defined me as that type of person. They had created those expectations for my behavior. And now I led them down that path by being so successful at writing academic articles, but that was the expectation. And they imposed that expectation on me. And I, I didn't like it. At some point, and it didn't take that long, I wanted to do more things. Yes, I wanted to keep publishing in top journals and I continue to, but I didn't want to be limited by that. And I didn't want to be limited, to be sure, by anyone else telling me what I could do and what I can't do. And so I came up with a radical solution to that problem. I left. And that's how I ended up actually at Dartmouth, where I've been uh, able to do so many different types of things. Anyways, back to the course and our conversation today with Chad Elias about art and money. We spent a session talking about Andy Warhol and another session talking about Banksy. And I'll just say something about Andy Warhol that's particularly interesting for me. I don't know if you know, but before he became this famous artist, he worked in the advertising industry as a commercial artist. He was working in the Mad Men world as one of these guys that was one of the creatives. And he actually figured out and did, as we know, incredibly successfully shift from commercial art world to the world of art as a field. And when we were talking about Warhol in the class, I was thinking, how did that actually happen? 
Because, you know, when you're known to be in it for the money, you're creating artists, commercial artists in an advertising agency, because that's your job. You get paid to do it. And that's different than being an, at least the vision that most people have of being an artist that is engaged in the creation of art for the aesthetic of that. But he made that shift kind of traded up. And I was thinking, well, is that like Steven Spielberg maybe going from making movies like Jaws and E.T.? to Schindler's List, or imagine Kim Kardashian writing a book that was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. I mean, it's mind-boggling. He can't imagine doing that. But he, in his own way, Andy Warhol did it. He broke out of that expectation that I was talking about before, and he created this high art, which is really kind of amazing. I mean, you see the reverse, right? You see people trading down. Fashion designers, for example, create this beautiful dress. This is true for jewelry as well. And it's $10,000 and it's only for movie stars and famous people and ultra wealthy people. But then they create a line for Target or a line for Macy's. That's not $10,000, but $250. There's a much bigger market there. And that's normal. That's trading down. But Andy Warhol traded up which is really yet another really interesting idea. Anyways, I can go on and on talking about what I got out of this course. It just made me think about so many things. And it's just a great opportunity to bring Chad Elias, Professor Elias, into the SIDCast to talk about uh, some of the things that came up. And we really, in this conversation, just get to the tip of the iceberg. There's so much there. And I encourage anyone who has an opportunity to keep learning in new ways. Art and art history are far removed from my world. But I got more out of this course than I've gotten out of a lot of other things. And so I hope you enjoy our conversation. There's a lot here. There's a lot of interesting things. And let's get into it. Let's bring Chad into the SIDCAST room. Welcome to the SIDCAST. Sid Finkelstein here with my teacher, my professor, Chad Elias. Hi, Chad. Hi, Sid. It's really great to be here. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for uh, joining me. I know you're about to just start teaching again at Dartmouth, so uh, time is tight. And, you know, my little introduction, I talked about how I met you in the course that you taught, Art and Money. And I thought, I learned so much. And there are just so many interesting issues that came up that I thought this would be a great conversation for the SIDCast. But let's start by um, maybe uh, sharing a little bit about your background. So you're from Australia originally, is that right? It is a little bit of a convoluted story. So I'm Lebanese-Australian. My parents immigrated from Lebanon in the 70s, in the mid-70s. They left during a very critical, difficult period. It was at the outset of what ended up becoming um, a civil war, a sectarian conflict that then also involved regional powers and, and also international powers who intervened at various stages over a 15-year period. A very complicated conflict, but my father was from the north of Lebanon. So the second city in Lebanon, Tripoli, uh, which is a port city, is about a little bit more than an hour north of Beirut. And my mother was from a small town in roughly the same area of north of Lebanon, an area known primarily for its agricultural economy. And they both emigrated to Australia. My father had previously spent some time working there. He was a jeweler. And so he had some knowledge of what life was like there, could make the cultural transition. But at the time that my mother immigrated, she did not speak any English at all. So quite a challenge. So you were born in Australia? No, I was born in Tripoli. But we left when I was just about 11 months old. So I obviously had no memory. And the first time that I went back, I was, I think, around about eight or nine. So I have some memories from that period, obviously. Only a brief visit, that was during the Civil War. And then 2000, it was 2005, was really my first real meaningful visit. Right. And you still have family back there? I do. Obviously, uh, you know, both in Australia, I have relatives, mostly from my father's side. And of course, in Lebanon, plenty of cousins. The cousins that I have in Australia, they have also an interesting story because they were Lebanese who'd immigrated to the west coast of Africa, Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast. And uh, there's quite a few Lebanese. It's, It's another diasporic community that formed. It's a large one in Australia, obviously, and primarily starting from that period in the 70s. It is really interesting, isn't it? The flows of people. And this is all extremely modern times. Anything that's happened in the last thousand years or several thousand is modern times, obviously. And this is you know 50 years ago. But you know, there's this research on DNA testing of fossils. Maybe you're familiar with some of that. It's I've read a bit about it. And just amazing to me what they're discovering and the flows of people tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of years ago. And the more you learn about that, the more you realize how we're all really the same, but yet we all decide to fight with each other and kill each other. It's just mind boggling to me how little time it's taken for people to forget whatever we perceive to be blood ties now, our life and death things, but we've got them with everybody, no less so in the Middle East than anywhere else. 
Yeah, we're still living, I think, with a legacy of, you could say, scientific racism that we can date to the 19th century. The beginnings of the way in which racial typologies had been formalized and institutionalized and and then over time get naturalized as ideology. So the things that you're referring to with blood ties or, you know, in the case of the Middle East, where there can be very primordial sectarian differences that are caught up seemingly in these pre-modern social structures that overlap with extremely modern and globalized cultural forces, economic forces in a country like Lebanon that's very small, doesn't have any natural resources, has a large, not a large population, but a very mobile population. And it's been dependent largely upon imports and its ability to be a mercantile space through its port traditionally. So very porous, you could say the country doesn't have um, the ability to kind of protect its own borders or to even exercise its own sovereignty politically or economically. It means that many influences actually end up becoming, you know, really decisive in a small country like that. Yeah. So you're growing up in Australia. I always wonder how do people become the people they become? And of course, we are in the process of becoming who we are. It's not a thing and you're done. It's always changing. And you're an art historian, you're a professor. And I know you play musical instruments as well that you were chatting about. Uh, were you always into the arts as a kid? Is that kind of the path you went on? Yes. The short answer is yes. I think I was you know, more intuitively or subliminally drawn to these different art forms. You know, my dad was a jeweler, but he was also always drawing. And both of my parents supported or encouraged me to do things like draw and paint. We had a piano in the house. They played lots of music as well. They had parties that were quite raucous as well. And so I got exposed to their record collection. So yeah, on, I think on the whole, I mean, I would say that in Australia, we have this complicated relationship with culture at times because of the geographical distance and because of the kind of way in which the country was formed and settled by Europeans. Things like sports have become overemphasized at the expense, I think, at, at times of, you know, like a museum culture that you would find in other parts of the world, uh, in the United States, Canada, and in Europe. I'm thinking when you say, you know, sports have become emphasized so much, which is true. My observation, I've been to Australia probably seven or eight times over the years, but I feel like America's like that as well, actually. I mean, America's a little bit of everything, especially in schools for uh, high school kids, even middle school, let alone university. I don't know any other country that emphasizes and weights sports and sports skills more in somebody's career path than America. Yeah, it's a complicated question here, you know, as you were acknowledging that there really is a lot of diversity and, and regional differences in the US. We have students, of course, at Dartmouth who grow up in Manhattan, and they have all of these museums at their doorstep. They're in families that kind of allow them or give them the means through which to acquire all of this cultural capital. And so museum culture is not intimidating at all. It's, it's seen as almost a kind of natural extension of the kind of other forms of cultural influence they're exposed to through whatever media they consume. But for other students at Dartmouth, yes, you can tell that going to a museum, seeing a contemporary art exhibition can be quite intimidating. And it's not something that they were exposed to very often, in some cases, maybe not at all. Right. So what are some of the things along the way that maybe for part of your PhD and other work that were your primary research topics may or may not be the things you're working on now as having been a faculty member for a number of years, but I'm curious about the kind of the first really exciting project or projects you worked on. They said, wow, this is for me. I want to keep doing that. How I got into art history and that itinerary. Yeah. In particular, yep. the two parts. One is kind of how this happened. It's not the most common path for anyone. Actually, any academic career is not. But also what you studied that made you say, this is great. This is what I want to do. Because, you know, I had that experience, obviously a different field in business. One of my first projects was studying compensation of CEOs and other senior executives. And none of it made any sense to me. It wasn't based on economic principles. And that was really, really interesting. And I wanted to understand why that is. And it turns out, maybe like many things in life, the real influences on CEO and executive compensation are social and political and power dynamics and not economic, despite what people tell you. So that got me started on that whole area. What's the story for you, though? I think I was drawn to art history as an undergraduate. I took a few courses that were looking at um, Australian art, British art in the 19th and 20th century. That really uh, sparked my interest. 
I think what ended up becoming decisive for me was seeing contemporary art being taught in a university setting, which, you know, is a relatively recent phenomenon. To be able to do a PhD on a living artist was not possible until about, I'd say, roughly two decades ago. Because there was a more conservative attitude around scholarship in the discipline that meant that, you know, the assumption was that you'd be working on an artist that had acquired some degree of institutional validity and that there was some degree of distance between, you know, the researcher and the actual artist, right? So you were thinking much more about an archive of work, of documents, and your role as a historian would be to kind of unearth material that was in some ways a kind of original contribution to the field. So there was a, a sense that still there that there had to be a distance between you and you know, your object of research. A very traditional perspective on history, right? I'm not a historian to know what the latest research is, although I did have a historian on the SIDCAST a while ago, Eric Foner from Columbia, really one of the leading scholars of Reconstruction era and the Civil War and ultra relevant for modern times, as it turns out. But rather than kind of traditional art, as you described, you're more interested in contemporary art. Why is that, first of all? And what is contemporary art? I don't want to be uh, evasive, but I think that's one of the difficulties in the field is actually defining that term. We've had various movements or isms, particularly in the 19th and 20th century. So, you know, it was possible to describe movements in art and give them a label. Then we got to a point where certain kind of notions of progress or avant-garde rebellion became exhausted and in fact impossible. And we also ran out of, in a way, terms that could describe or sum up a movement or a trend or a particular impulse in contemporary culture. It's almost like um, the term contemporary art, which is the thing that really comes after the last kind of pervasive movement within art history, certainly in North America and Europe, would be postmodernism. It's something we see both in literature, also, of course, in the visual arts, and as well in, in architecture. That's largely a 1970s, 80s phenomenon. You could say that one of the starting points of this term, contemporary art, as a term that becomes institutionalized and becomes a kind of de facto periodizing label, starts to come into currency you know, in the late 80s. Very recently, you know, of course, there's always been contemporary artists. It's just that the term itself wasn't kind of reflexively used. It wasn't, you know, used in this particular way to kind of name, you know, more than just a trend. I think it goes beyond that. It's really thinking about artists who are living. That's one easy way to really think about it. Artists mm -hmm. who are living, who are making work, but also who feel in some ways that they don't really have access to the kind of history of art. And there is a kind of sense of various forms of detachment from previous periods, previous styles, movements. So contemporary art sort of names a kind of break mm -hmm. with history. Yeah, it's kind of funny because the word contemporary means something in the world of art now and art history. But in fact, I suppose Monet, when he was working, he was a contemporary at the time. No one ever talked about it. He was just considered an artist. But what got you interested in this particular area of art as opposed to, we could talk about Impressionism or Renaissance or lots and lots of others. Why uh, modern contemporary art? I think the short answer is I was drawn to the way in which contemporary art uses theory is very conceptual. What started to happen during the postmodern period that I referred to earlier, and also in the aftermath of it, is that art became increasingly detached from the notion of manual or technical skill, the ability to draw or paint in a certain way, or to use a camera in a particular way that showcased your compositional abilities. Right. Those kinds of skills still matter, but only up to a certain point. And what you start to see in the art world is increasingly artists who make work that is really much more reliant upon its ideas and the kind of conceptual, you could say the IP of the work, right? It's intellectual property as opposed to its kind of material qualities. And in many cases, artists start to outsource even the manual production of the work and it's the idea that they retain authorship of. That's really interesting. I was going to ask you about that and you brought it up. How could an artist, I mean, it happens and maybe it's common, I don't know, but it's such a 
strange idea, I think, for people if they're not immersed in the field, that you could be an artist and you could outsource, meaning you have other people that do a lot of the work for you. You are the CEO of your artwork. You're the designer. You're the mastermind behind it, but you're not necessarily drawing all the lines or carving every part of the sculpture or what have you. How is that possible? In business, we talk about scaling. When you mention that you know artists sometimes are outsourcing their work and uh, create a production organization almost, that sounds like a way of scaling. And it sounds really weird, really strange for people that are outside of the art world. Where is it coming from? Is it legit? I mean, is there like a dozen questions I've got about that? And is this a trend that's here to stay? I mean, what are some of your thoughts about that? It coincides with that period where, you know, the economies, you know, in the developed world start to become increasingly financialized and a period of massive deindustrialization. Right. So I'm talking about the 1960s and 70s. So that period, it's no accident that contemporary artists also start to think of their work as something that is no longer just tied to materialized forms of production, but actually the production of ideas. So they think of their work as participating in a knowledge-based economy. We now use the term data more so than knowledge, a data-driven society. But the currency attached to ideas, both the cultural currency, but of course, you know, the economic value attached to ideas is something that I think contemporary art latches onto very quickly. It's often weirdly the case that we set the artist up as some kind of enemy of the business world and we see these spheres as being actually diametrically opposed in their values. But if you look at the kinds of ways in which corporate workplaces start to become restructured and the artist studio starts to become also restructured, I'm talking about the restructuring of roles and labor systems, you see some very interesting parallels. It involves uh, dispensing with the mythology of the romantic artist who somehow detached from commercial and economic interests and, you know, just makes work for the love of art. It's a very powerful myth that we still live with. I think to answer your question, there is a kind of interesting connection between this financialization that happens in the 1960s and 70s. And and as I said, that's coincident with deindustrialization in those major economies. More recently, what we've seen is also the way in which art has become a new asset, is being treated as a new asset class that you can borrow against, you can trade on, defer capital gains taxes on as well. So that's also, I think, tied to the degree to which if an artwork is no longer just a tangible good, and it can actually be, you had conceptual practices in the 60s and 70s where the work of art was a contract, for instance, or it could be something as lightweight as a poem, a word piece. There is this kind of move away from thinking just that the material value, the kind of, as I said before, the set of manual skills involved in producing that work would determine its ultimate economic value. And that's an interesting shift that happens that allows artworks to become, I think, much more fungible commodities and to flow much more freely because of the fact that they become detached from almost in the same, you know, with the move away from a gold standard in currency systems, you know, art starts to also detach itself uh, from some kind of notion of a gold standard. A lot that you just said is very interesting. So on the outsourcing part, I suppose it's not unusual for artists to have an atelier or an entire operation, in a sense, you know, that have people helping them. That's been around for a long time. So in a way, we shouldn't be shocked that this is being done by some artists in a much more professional manner. And then, you know, for authors, uh, there are several best-selling authors that basically somebody else is writing the book, then they put their name on it and they might edit it. And that's one of the ways in which they could produce a book every three months. So it is happening in different fields and there is some history to it. But when you look at the modern art world and you talk about how it's so financially oriented, the question I really have about this is how does price determined, how does value determined for artwork? And let's say in particular for contemporary art, how does this happen? Because it's kind of a mystery for most people, right? There are so many players, there are critics, there are uh, museums, there are art historians, there are galleries, there are a lot of players. They all have their own personal and professional interests. But somehow, you know, these prices get formed and some of the prices are unbelievable. And people look at some of the work and 
they say, what exactly is going on here? So what is value when it comes to artwork and how does that relate to price? It's difficult to determine in some ways the pricing systems that operate in contemporary art, partly because of the opacity of the system, that the uh, key players in the system, and I'm referring particularly to dealers who run galleries, you know, the first point of sale of a work is largely through a gallery system. And these dealers all know each other. And of course, they have very important connections with a collector class, right? So their ability to be able to cultivate a clientele is, of course, critical. Now, when they sign on an artist, they have to make a series of calculations that are not, I would say, hard and fast, but they involve a discussion with the artist about the media that they're working in. And they try and draw some kinds of parallels with, so let's say if you're an artist and you're working in photography and you're a landscape photographer and you make work of a certain scale and you're, let's say you're working in color as well and you're working with digital cameras, you have already there, I've listed four or five different elements that allow you to kind of define a feel in which you're operating in. And then we can draw some correlates with other artists that are making similar work and are at different stages of their career. And we can look at the price that those artists have achieved depending on the kinds of institutional accolades or recognition they've received. There isn't a hard and fast connection between having a survey at a major museum like the Museum of Modern Art and then achieving a certain price in the market really just doesn't work that way. But over the longer term, it becomes less and less arbitrary. And you can draw a connection between the kind of critical or symbolic value that is attached to a particular artist's practice over time. And then, you know, of course, the price or economic value that is assigned to their work. So I think early on, it's more difficult to determine that price because an artist is still an unknown quantity. And it's more the potentiality of their work that some collectors might see in it. So they might end up actually overpaying or in some cases it could be undervalued and the world hasn't quite understood actually the importance of it. They might actually be ahead of the curve and it takes the art world and society longer to actually catch up with the work in a way. So it is a gambit in some cases for the dealer to try and figure out, okay, I don't want to overcharge because that could also backfire in the long run, but I also don't want to lowball my artists. Yeah, I see the challenge. What strikes me about this is there's a lot of close to back of the envelope thinking going on. I mean, it's more sophisticated than that, but it's not that unreasonable of a description. And there's a lot of uncertainty and trial and error is part of it. And whenever you see a field like that in other places, you see algorithms come up, you see data analytics come up and just more generally about pricing. Pricing is a very sophisticated data analytic field, right? Look at airlines and their pricing. No two people in an airplane are paid the same price unless they travel together and bought the ticket at the same time or close to that because they have all these algorithms to try to maximize how much money you can get from any one customer. So to what extent has this started in the art world? And is it getting traction or is it just not a realistic idea in the art world to bring in algorithms and data analytics to try to quote unquote solve the pricing issue? There's definitely been a shift towards that. It's happened over the last decade, particularly with a site like Artsy, which is really now a big aggregate site for galleries and, and also for collectors to come together. It allows you to search any artist's work, or you could do a search by different media or different styles of art, even color, <laughs> things like that. You could do a search by price and geography, a whole bunch of different criteria. And then algorithms will be able to give you a series of suggestions of similar works. So if you select a particular artist's work, and you can start to track also how those works in particular genres or styles have performed over time. So you're given various levels of predictive data. In the case of the galleries themselves, of course, they have a lot of data that they don't share, both with other galleries, of course. So they carefully safeguard that. They're not public entities, so they have no obligation to share their books. And so I think there's still a black hole in the contemporary art world in the market around sales figures. It becomes quite difficult, actually, to track some of this data. And I think sites like Artsy are making inroads in that area. 
the art world and the art market in particular is a quite curious economy. It's still, as I was saying before, has a lot of opacity in it. It's very deregulated as a market if you're comparing it even to the financial industries, which I would say are still underregulated. Anyone that, you know, has seen a film like The Big Short would realize what can go on at Wall Street. So, you know, as a result, while it's very sophisticated and I was drawing parallels between what happens in contemporary art and, and the financial world, there is still the persistence of archaic exchange rituals in the art market, informal deals, leftovers of the gift economy, a logic of uh, I rub your back, you rub mine, and then, you know, merging of friendships and business relations. So there's not a clear separation there, just the nature of that ecology. And that's, I think, one of the attractions for some buyers, right? They get into this crowd and it's got a lot of, as you have called it and others, cultural capital and makes you feel good and you gain a lot of value from it. And you're invited to the right places. What you're describing also makes me wonder about, you know, the big players, Sotheby's, Christie's, Phillips, and let's say, I don't know if those are the big three, maybe I'm missing someone, but they're pretty close to that. And are they going to go the way that GM, Ford, and Chrysler went, you know, the big three in the automobile industry? These are the only players in town. They operate the way they operate. They have all these rules. They have, you know, some of these understandings that you just described. And here come the Silicon Valley or the uh, Alibaba Tencent uh, crowd or who knows what or some Swedish uh, startup to totally disrupt. Is it ripe for disruption? Maybe it's starting to happen already. It's an interesting analogy suggesting, you know, that in a way the auction houses might be operating in ways that could end up becoming a disadvantage for them, that there are new types of buyers out there who are comfortable with actually looking at work online and buying based on what they're seeing on a screen. I mean, they're, they're moving massively towards online sales and online auctions. And, and this period of the pandemic has been a great testing ground for that. I think it's given them license to really explore that area. So they are very aware of the need to actually continue to cultivate new clientele, including millennials who have a very different attitude about how they're encountering art and how much value they would give to a bricks and mortar experience versus one that is screen-based. So the success of companies like Peloton, you know, you can learn from what those companies are doing, you know, the way that in which screen space interfaces with what is going on in the home and the reorganization of the home as a workplace and the ability to sell a tangible good that is also linked to an experience, the whole question of the experience economy. There is something unique about auctions, which is tied to that experiential value. The real-time nature of that transaction, the live bidding, the theater and performance of it, can that translate to an online setting? So there's an electricity in the room in an auction that I think really is tied to its efficacy or you know its draw for a lot of collectors. It's like watching a live event, isn't it? It's like watching a football match or a hockey game. There's something, especially in the old days when we could all be in stadiums and arenas, there's really something electric when you're there. And while you can watch the game and sometimes with better viewing angles on television, you don't get, I mean, maybe movies are that way too. When you're in a crowd with, you know, it could be a hundred people or more in a movie theater and you're experiencing something at the same time. There's something really special about that, that you don't get as we all huddle in front of Netflix and Prime every night these days. So there is something there and that's part of that experience economy. This move to e-commerce online is very interesting. Tell me if this is correct, that Sotheby's and Christie's and others, they resisted this or this was considered beneath them. This was a small part of their business and now they're jumping into it. Is that more right than wrong what I just said? Yeah, it's correct. I think they resisted it up to a certain point, but they now realize they have to adapt to that shift and they don't really have any choice, I think. I mean, their clientele is changing. So they're going to be looking more at digital natives, people who are very accustomed to seeing a lot of artworks on people's social media feeds. And that actually sets a kind of framework for them so that, you know, even when they see it in person, it's still mediated by that initial encounter and that kind of habitual encounter with screen space. Does the role of Instagrammers hit the art world? Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, becomes an important space, I think, in which certain collectors have been able to cultivate and add some degree of prestige to their collections. And, you know, that gets validated in different ways by, for instance, 
you know, if there are influential curators and influential artists who are seen as very peer on a certain collector's feed, right, on Instagram. Those kinds of flexes, you could say, are ways in which collectors can affirm a certain degree of prestige, not only to the work that they're acquiring on the market, but also to the kinds of social connections that they've formed through that practice. Right. You know, when I think about Instagram as a brand developer and bloggers that do this, it's really a marketing and branding effort. And it's about expanding the market. And it's about a mass market play, truly commercializing whatever the product happens to be. In the world of art, even though there is this assumption or this feeling that there's this inherent conflict between commercializing and selling and doing well versus the starving artist and the artist that's true to his or her craft, you've already kind of dispelled that notion in modern art world for the most part. But it does bring to mind, at least to me, when I was doing your class, you did a whole class on Andy Warhol as the guy that really changed the game (laughs) from a business point of view. What I found so fascinating about Andy Warhol was that here was someone who came from the commercial world, right? He was in the advertising industry, uh, creative side, and he adopted many of those uh, memes and ways of thinking and skill sets into the art world and was considered I don't know if it's right to say he was considered a great artist, but he certainly was a very successful, but also highly influential artist. So how does Andy Warhol fit into kind of the scope of the changes that we're describing as as we see the art world kind of meld with various commercial mechanisms? In many ways, when he arrived on the scene in the art world in the early 60s, he made the shift from Madison Avenue to you know, the New York art world, he was ahead of the curve. He was bringing ideas, as you were suggesting, from advertising in the corporate world and bringing them full-blown into a kind of new model of artistic practice. And he would explicitly refer to himself as a business artist, which was at the time, I think, you know, quite challenging. There was like still this idea that a separation between, you know, corporate values or the business world and this, you know, as I was saying before, a kind of romance attached to, you know, a bohemian figure who would be making works of art privately in a studio and be, you know, in touch with a muse. He destroyed that mythology, I think, in some ways. And he cultivated myths in other ways. We could talk about that. But I think the interesting thing about his whole practice, one of the interesting things was the outsourcing of labor. So, a lot of the screen prints that he famously made were done with a team of assistants in the factory in his studio in Chelsea. And he realized, I think, you know, he must have taken this on board from his work in advertising that, you know, more so than the fee that you're paid for any given campaign that you're working on, it's the ability to actually retain ownership of that intellectual property that is the critical thing. So, your ability to actually be able to, you were suggesting, you know, there's a kind of circulation of memes in his work. And I think he also realized how certain images can gain currency very quickly, what makes them visually effective, the ability to communicate with an audience, for instance, that doesn't necessarily have cultural literacy in the way that a lot of abstract expressionist work kind of assume that you would have a knowledge of 20th century avant-garde movements. So to look at a work by Jackson Pollock for a general public would be quite challenging, but for a literate elite, a cultural elite in the New York art world, they understood the kind of traditions that was coming out of. Warhol wanted to essentially create work that didn't assume that kind of cultural literacy that would be much more accessible and of course, you know, would be Assuming a kind of knowledge of consumer culture, which at that time was becoming a more pervasive aspect of post-war American society. I'm not sure if that fully answers your question. Well, so many things. The question was a broad question. And there's so many things to say about Andy Warhol, but I want to complicate the question by asking about Banksy, because when I, and you had a class session on Banksy as well, I looked at Banksy as someone who learned from Andy Warhol and took it to the next level. Well, of course, in a creative way, because he was a street artist originally, but could you say a little bit about, because not everyone listening is going to know, maybe they've heard of Banksy, but they won't really know a lot about him, who he is and why he's so famous, why he's so special. Banksy is a British artist known for making street art, and we don't know much about him other than that he's from Bristol, presumably white and male. Some people speculate that Banksy might be a collective, but we don't know for sure. So the anonymity of the artist is in some ways part of the mystique and draw. He's received a lot of attention you know, over the last two decades for making um, street art that I think you know, touches on 
really interesting questions around gentrification that has occurred in major cities in the developed world and also in the developing world as well. He opened up a hotel, a luxury hotel, boutique hotel in Palestine, right smack bang facing this wall that has been set up by Israel. And this is in Bethlehem. So he's kind of cultivating this idea of um, this hotel as being a you know luxury experience in an extremely fraught political space. And Westerners are invited to come in and really kind of consume the occupation of Palestine, not necessarily in, in a cynical way, but actually getting them to realize that war tourism and actually slumming it, these things are tied to processes of gentrification. And there's kind of a complicated relationship that you often see in cities where, of course, artists are always at you know the leading edge of moving into areas or in parts of a city that have yet to be fully developed, taken over by you know corporate interests or real estate developers. And these areas are often really interesting spaces where you would see immigrant communities, where you'd see you know maybe degrees of economic disparity that can be quite stark. And the affordability of those spaces for artists becomes also part of their appeal. But of course, once the artists move into these spaces, there can be a process where the developers also follow suit. And I think Banksy's very aware of this with street art, that street art has the potential to gentrify, that it can actually knowingly or unknowingly lead to, you know, a process that eventually presses people out where you start to have rent increases, you know, Starbucks start to move in versus, you know, local smaller businesses. And then eventually people can no longer afford to live in those neighborhoods. So in the case of his project in Palestine, it's interesting because he's almost suggesting that on the one hand, maybe that one of the solutions to the conflict, the Arab-Israeli conflict, might be in some ways the gentrification of these spaces in the occupied territories that really are economically in a really bad position. And if there is a way in which you can actually develop some tourist economy in a space like that, you might actually be able to provide for future and, you know, some degree of an outlet for youth there. And on the other hand, he's also putting Westerners in an uncomfortable position where they're actually, as I was suggesting before, they're attracted to this space because there's a thrill attached to being in parts of the world that have this danger and kind of sense of political contestation attached to them. You might have well-meaning kind of liberal values that draw you to that part of the world, but when you're confronted with a lot of the signs of social and economic depravity, then, uh, you know, I think it becomes quite jarring to be staying in a boutique hotel while looking at your surroundings. And I think he wants to, rather than resolve these contradictions, I think he wants to, in some ways, make them more visible to people, not only in the art world, but also we're talking more generally about, as I was saying, um, you could say liberal elites, including myself, who can travel to different parts of the world, kind of can consume these spaces in the developing world with some degree of detachment, can go into these cultures, and then, you know, I can leave any time. I have this mobility that allows me to maybe too easily kind of move in and out of different socioeconomic conditions. So that project you're describing is really a kind of a mind-boggling project that somebody wouldn't do such a thing. But it's consistent, I think, with at least the image that I pick up from Banksy, which is deeply authentic about the people, creating opportunities, pointing out what the flaws are in life and inequality. But he's doing it while selling works of art for millions of dollars. And I actually don't find anything wrong with that whatsoever. I just think many people do. And I've seen this in other walks of life when someone does or has an image of doing really good things for society, let's say, but makes a lot of money doing it. There's a negative reaction to that person. I've seen it with my students. I used to do a case study on the body shop, which was founded by a woman named Anita Roddick. And that was about, you know, no testing on animals. And we're all about social responsibility and mm -hmm. we donate money and and all those things were true but students really many not all really reacted negatively to her because they thought she was manipulative i think is the answer and i don't know whether that's the sense that people or critics have had about banksy or not but the fact remains that his work sells for millions of dollars and i guess i'll just ask you whether there's any inherent conflict or people have spoken of that conflict or that's just you know let's get past that is maybe the better way to look at it 
I think it's a complicated relationship that he has with the art market because in some ways he's resisted the ability for people to take his work and sell it. So with the case of graffiti and street art, it's an interesting issue because you know you can make a mural and if that's on somebody's private property, then they have the ability to actually take a piece of that wall out from a building that they own and then sell that, right? Which some people have tried to do, right? Some people have done, yeah. He became very aware of that that there was this you know high price that was attached to his work as he became you know a celebrity and he garnered a lot of public attention the media really attached a lot of publicity to his work and then he started to factor that into i think making work that he could use to stimulate attention most kind of infamously the self-shredding that was sold at auction where you know the work was a kind of adapted street art where he started to sell work that would be more market friendly. So prints, you know, limited edition prints rather than just making a mural on a wall. So that would be much easier to market and sell work that is portable like that and that can be, you know, hung in someone's living room. And uh, in this particular case, work, I think was Girl with a Balloon, it was based on an earlier mural, but it was, a, as I was saying, a print. And the work attracted a lot of bidding at a you know, high-profile auction, and then at the conclusion of the bidding, there'd been a device that had been installed on the back of the work that was a kind of shredding machine. So the print starts to kind of descend out of the frame, and it's shredded. The artwork is shredded. Somebody, there was just a bidding war for it. Somebody bought it for maybe a million dollars, maybe more, and then it starts to shred in front of everyone. That's crazy. You understand that. <laughs> it is crazy, but at the same time, you know, the piece remained intact in a certain sense. Even though it shredded, it was still attached to the frame. And there was a lot of publicity that, you know, was generated for Banksy, suggesting that in a way, this was a way in which he was playing with the market, right? On the one hand, right, his work is at times, it's beyond his control to counter the degree to which various collectors can speculate on his work can sell it and resell it and then kind of essentially inflate its value through this kind of flipping that happens in the art market. But in other ways, you know, through these kinds of performances or strategies, he's able to, I think, create situations where <laughs> he can uh, disrupt some of those exchanges. And is it true that the value actually went up after this episode? I don't know the full story there, but I think, yeah, there was a sense that that work, because of the media coverage, the global media coverage that it garnered, the mechanics of how you would resell the work in its current state, that's an interesting question. Because I don't know, you know, logistically how you'd be able to transport the work, conserve it. It's an interesting thing with street art as well, where you're actually having people literally taking a piece out of a wall and then having that somehow uh, not necessarily framed, but, you know, it has to be housed and conserved and, you know, something that was meant to be an ephemeral gesture that was mm -hmm. actually meant to be in many ways something that would disappear. That's the ethos of a lot of street art, that it's designed in a way, it's linked to many communities who don't actually have property and don't have access to public space, but have access to a spray can and have creativity. And it's a way to reclaim those spaces that have been otherwise given over either to commercial forces or let's say in some cases by municipalities and the state who could be, let's say, if you're thinking about totalitarian nations who very carefully control what can happen in a public space. So I worked for a while, for instance, on a whole topic on the role of street art in the Egyptian revolution. And that was fascinating to go to Cairo and see for the first time a lot of street artists who were actually able to make work in public. Previously, you would have been arrested for doing anything mm -hmm. like that. Wow. This work of art that was shredded kind of gets us back to one of the first things we talked about, which is value and how do you know what the value is of art? How do you determine it? And the story behind this is a true original. Cannot be, I don't know, but cannot be repeated, but it's the first time that's ever happened and it's not nearly as effective if someone did it again. And so if you happen to have that in your home, I could easily imagine for a collector generating a tremendous amount of value for him or for her because that's the story. You own that story. You own that uniqueness that you, in a sense, own the 
creative spark on that day that Banksy created, not just in the work of art, but in his way of selling it. The other thing about street art, and you mentioned, you know, you use the word graffiti. It wasn't that long ago that graffiti was not art, not considered art at all. I remember I lived in New York in the 80s, and there was a kind of prime time for graffiti in the subway cars. And I forgot which mayor started this, but it came up with a plan that every single subway car would be cleaned top to bottom before it would start on its route. And they started to do that. And that was actually based on research by this sociologist. I'm trying to remember his name. You'll know who it is. Maybe Wilson or something like that talked about broken windows. It was the broken windows theory. If there's a broken window in a neighborhood, it sends a signal to people that people don't really care about what's going on. And it leads to more broken windows and more. And so you've got to clean up that ugly graffiti from these subway cars because you don't want people to think that it's okay to deface public property. But now we have a world where some of this work is incredibly valuable, which is really a remarkable thing that's happened. Because who's spending the million dollars plus to buy this? These are collectors. These are people that have, by definition, a lot of money. And how do they have that money? Because they are in mainstream power jobs, whether that's private equity, whether it's finance, whether that's you know running your own company or a CEO. And that's connecting the two worlds, right? Connecting the group of people that now we know to be artists that were considered criminals. And it's connecting it with people that are truly the establishment. And I don't know if there's anything to say about that other than that is really fascinating to see that. Yeah, I think for a certain collector class that can buy virtually any kind of asset they want, Art offers a particularly unique attraction. And as I was saying before, it's tied both to its exclusivity, but also to that sense that it has an intellectual and conceptual element that distinguishes it from other luxury goods, right? Where if you're looking at a luxury commodity, even a limited edition car or certain forms of fashion that can really, in some ways, outstrip the cost of many artworks. But What they don't have that you find in art is this element, as you were saying, of narrative and this conceptual or intellectual dimension that we think of as being fundamental to the artwork, not only as a material object, but also in terms of our encounter with it and the conversations that we have when we look at works of art, that is part of the work. Right. And I think that's certainly part of the attraction as well with something like street art, where we see people who are incredibly creative who are able to express themselves in ways that aren't necessarily given the kind of institutional validity that we see to a lot of artistic practices that are uh, more visible in the art world that we'd find in museums and in the gallery system. But it's precisely that element of being outside of you know, the mainstream that makes a lot of artworks attractive to people who, let's say, operate in a corporate setting, who are part of a social and economic elite. They're not going to be drawn to the obvious signs of wealth. They're actually desiring things that in many ways are outside of their social orbit. But I'm here, I'm talking about a very elite sector of collectors. Yeah, this kind of intellectual idea that comes with certain art, maybe all art, but some art in particular. I think that's a new idea. That concept is a new idea for most people listening. It's nothing that I had thought about uh, before, but as we talk about it, and of course, I've heard you kind of convey this in the classroom as well, it's a very powerful idea because you can consume an asset. You can consume a meal. Take something really simple. You cook a nice dinner, you consume it, you get pleasure out of that. You get enjoyment, you get value out of that. And then you could offer that meal to a friend and you get value out of the fact that you're doing something for somebody else. But there's a third value, which is almost the aesthetic. And it goes beyond the taste, the physical taste. If I'm, I'm using kind of a silly analogy, just a, a meal, but maybe not that silly in some ways. And it goes beyond the taste. It's the aesthetic, it's the process, it's the idea. And that there's huge, huge value to that. For some people, not everybody cares about people. Many people go to McDonald's and they're not going to worry about this. They'll think we're nuts talking about this. But for many others, it is a real thing. And I think that's a really fascinating idea to think about as it may apply to other fields. Chad, we're just about out of time. We actually are out of time. But I want to just raise one last thing about authenticity. And I just think it's a really interesting idea. We talk about street cred, right? And these artists, these graffiti artists, or any artist for that matter, certainly the starving artists get some degree of authenticity. People that are not in it just for the money, and that's in a quote because that, as you've described, is a misnomer. But there's an authenticity that creates this cultural capital that makes you genuine that could lead to wealth. And Banksy's got that. Maybe Andy Warhol had that. Maybe every successful artist has that. 
But then when you have this wealth, how is it that great wealth doesn't then diminish the authenticity? It's like hip hop artists have authenticity. The image isn't not true for everyone. They're from the inner city and they're writing about and singing about their lived experience that others haven't shared before. And they're having a chance to do that. But then some of them become ultra successful. And then do they lose their authenticity? I don't know that they do. First of all, do you agree with that? And second, why is that? Because many people that make it big lose some authenticity along the way. And that doesn't seem to be the case, or at least less so the case for these artists. I think, you know, an easy answer would be to say even the idea of authenticity, sincerity in contemporary art is held with a large degree of suspicion. Some artists, I think, when they become more transparently mercantile and start to make work that you could say panders towards collectors that they know will easily sell, that becomes in some ways a self-defeating exercise that can actually backfire as a strategy because you start to diminish the degree of intellectual or symbolic value that is attached to the work if you are making work that is seen as facile, as really more decorative or appealing too easily to people that are looking at work you know, less for its uh, intellectual qualities and more for, you know, its material qualities, let's say. So there's that aspect of it. But I think, you know, what I was saying earlier about contemporary artists is an area where the very notion of authenticity has been very powerfully questioned. And that came in the aftermath of postmodernism, where a lot of artists, a lot of postmodern artists really started to question this idea of originality, authenticity, sincerity as a criteria for the production of an artwork. And they started to, you know, following people like Warhol, realize that actually there are many things in our culture that would make us question the performance of authenticity, the degree to which authenticity can be packaged and orchestrated and mimed. It can be very effectively performed but it's a performance. And I think it's more complicated in other areas, you know, where, you know, in the hip hop world, where you have huge amount of money at play in the music industry. And then you have people who are coming out of different communities that have been, you know, historically marginalized. And then they've kind of assimilated into a system that asks them to continue to perform this notion of a self, even while their material circumstances have changed dramatically. How much power do they have to kind of maybe resist that, to not package their, you know, a certain notion of identity that is linked to sort of the idea of urban authenticity? But I think, you know, in contemporary art is different. There isn't the same expectation to be authentic, as I was saying. And at the same time, I still think, though, there is a mix of artists at the top of the art market who... You know, you could say, and the one extreme would be, you know, artists like Jeff Koons, Damien Hirst, where the work is in many ways seen as being quite cynical. The artists make no bones about the fact that they're outsourcing a lot of their ideas. They're making work for hedge fund managers, and they're also producing a lot of merchandise. They will say very clearly that their interests are economic. They don't try and hide that at all. But people would question whether the kind of celebrity attached to those artists is in some ways a kind of outcome or byproduct of the high price attached to it. And that, you know, they're kind of, again, just famous for being famous. And there, there isn't some kind of substance in the work that can really underpin or justify the high price. Now, there's other artists that I really highly regard who also achieve very high prices in the market. You know, an artist like Richard Prince is an appropriation artist. Work is very conceptual. Um, it's sophisticated and nuanced. And it's not as if I don't think we can necessarily resolve the contradiction between, you know, an artist like that being able to achieve a degree of financial success and then retain some element of intellectual integrity in the work. I think there is going to be this tension there. And for some artists, that's quite a productive space to operate. They're not necessarily trying to resolve those kind of competing demands that are made on them. They, they might actually be wanting to precisely operate in that space of tension. Very interesting. It's a discussion really 
opens the door to some of the relationships between money and wealth and income and the art world. And that's what your course really opened my eyes on. We're just touching on some of it in a short podcast. But it's a surprise, I think, and will be a surprise to a lot of people who may cling to some classic stereotypes. And maybe it's because Van Gogh is so famous and we talk about him so much and we know that he died in tragic circumstances and died penniless and is certainly in the short list of the most financially successful resales of his work in the shortlist of the most lucrative. But that's not necessarily the way it is. There's a production of art. And I think you've also pointed out the intellectual side to it. Maybe that's what gives it the authenticity that sometimes stays or kind of lasts, even though there are others that, and maybe Andy Warhol was the first, at least famous one in that category that are in it for the money as much as anything else. Chad Elias, thanks for taking the time to kind of walk around the modern art world a little bit and answer some of my questions about things that really intrigued me from uh, your course. And I think we'll get a lot of interest for a lot of other people. Thanks very much. Thank you, Sid. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season two and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or you can email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please Give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The SITCAST is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.